Hey, let's get our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. We're in a series on uh, the life of Jesus that's going to go. Is this a series that's going to be broken up into little chunks and it's going to go 11 months long, which we're really excited about. And um, while we're turning in our Bibles, I just want to remind you, we talked about this last Sunday, that we're starting a brand new prayer opportunity on Sunday mornings uh, in a room that's located between the two exit doors back there. Uh, We have two elders who are going to be praying through this service, and some of you who just love to pray, I mean, prayer is your ministry, I want to encourage you to join them. You can come to the 11, pray during the 9, or vice versa. So take advantage of that opportunity. We believe that uh, nothing of eternal significance happens apart from prayer. Prayer is the power source behind what we do here at Westridge Church. So, all right, book of Luke, if you're still flipping, you're like, I don't know where Luke is. It's in the New Testament at the very beginning, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, four books uh, called the Gospel Accounts. Now, since we're doing the life of Jesus, some of you may be expecting that uh, this morning we're going to cover the birth of Jesus. It's going to be kind of like Christmas in February. Well, uh, for the sake of having something relative to talk about in December, uh, we're going to save that for December, if that's okay with you. But today we're going to talk about Jesus's early life. Now, we obviously know some of the events surrounding his birth and, and, and some of the events around his toddler years. We know the most about his ministry years, which were the last three years of his life, but we, we know very little about the childhood years, the teenage years, and the years where Jesus was in his 20s. We know very, very little of that. Well, why is that? Well, we really don't know. When, when the Holy Spirit directed the authors of the New Testament to compile the stories and to write the, uh, the account of Jesus in the Gospels, he actually directed them to give us about 13 verses of his life uh, 13, that, that really span between the, the ages of three till about 30 years. And I know that, that seems kind of odd, but here's what we need to understand. Whatever it is that the Holy Spirit puts in the Bible, it's there for a reason. And whatever he has left out, he left out for a reason. So it's obviously no mistake on God's part, that we find ourselves 30 years into the life of Jesus before we really begin to dig into his teaching, his ministry, and what you know, he was all about. However, as we're going to see this morning, uh, even though we only have 13 verses that talk about his early life, and then we have a few verses that talk about his baptism, um, God was clearly at work in Jesus' life preparing him for his calling, for his purpose, and for his ministry. Now, these were crucial years. You need to understand that. Even though we don't hear a lot about it, we don't see a lot about it, there were crucial years where God was molding him. He was shaping him. He was developing him, preparing him for his three years of earthly ministry, which involved, obviously, as we know, his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, in Luke chapter 2, we see that the events that are around the Christmas story have passed. Joseph and Mary are now entering the temple and they are participating in some, some ceremonial things that Jewish parents did with their children. And we see that eight days after Jesus was born, they went into the temple. He is officially given the name Jesus. And then he is circumcised. And then there's a 40-day day, day, uh, time of purification that Mary had to observe after the birth of Jesus before she was actually allowed to go into the temple. And so when that 40-day time period ends... We see Joseph and Mary coming into the temple, presenting Jesus to the Lord in a ceremony of dedication. And then we also see them offering a pair of turtle doves as a sacrifice to the Lord for Mary's purification. Now, there's something significant about this offering because normally when somebody would make a sacrifice for this particular offering, they would bring in a, uh, a young, uh, like a calf, or they would bring in a lamb. 
And if you couldn't afford that, well, then you would bring in a pair of doves or, or pigeons. In other words, what we need to see here is that Joseph and Mary were financially poor. And I'm going to say more about that in just a moment. But there's this cool moment that also takes place um, after this whole event takes place here between a man named Simeon and baby Jesus. And um, I, want you, I want you to read that later on this week if you, went, if you want to. It's great homework. But I want to pick up the story in Luke chapter 2, verse 39. So with your Bibles open or your... Uh, devices illuminated. We're going to read right here. And when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, talking about this whole circumcision and, and the events surrounding Mary, it says they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And there the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, They went up according to the custom, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents didn't know it. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I read that passage of of Scripture, I cringe just a little bit as a parent, okay? And some of you are like, well, what's going on here? Joseph and Mary leave Jesus at the age of 12 in a major city all by himself. In other words, they forgot him. Now, this is, the, this is the very first version of Home Alone, okay? Before we ever hear anything about Macaulay Culkin. I mean, they're on this caravan going back to Nazareth, and Mary goes, Jesus! You know, and then they head back. Verse 44. But supposing him to be in the group, they, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, I don't know if you've ever forgotten a child or if you've left a child, you know, for a brief moment. But it's terrifying for a parent. Um, In 2004, right after my dad had had died, and and for those of you who don't know, my dad actually drowned in a rafting accident. Uh, My family, my brother's family, my mom, we went to, uh, to Panama City. We had a couple in the church that gave us a gift that said, you guys need to get away for a week or so. And so we went to, uh, to Panama City, and we just hung out and just, you know, grieved and the whole thing. And while we were on the beach, we were just, like, we're on high alert, all right, because our kids are, are younger. Um, and, and my son, Zach, who I think was about five years old at the time, he was, like, within, he was, like, probably 20 feet in front of me, and he had this, uh, one of those boogie boards, body boards, whatever you call it, and, and a rope strapped to his feet, and he was piling seaweed on it. And we're just watching him, and he's kind of inching his way down the beach. And I look over, Amy looks over, and we're just kind of scanning the water because our son Taylor was out there with, you know, my niece and nephew and my younger brother. And all of a sudden we look over and Zach is gone. Now, we are freaking out because we've just been through this horrific ordeal with my dad. And now our, my my five-year-old is missing on the beach. And we are, you know, we're combing the beach. My brother and sister-in-law go this way. Amy and I, you know, I'm going in the water. I'm looking everywhere for him. I'm panicking. And finally... Um, I don't know who was it, you know, one, either my son or whatever. Way, way down the beach, Zach had just wandered away. And I mean, some of you have had that kind of situation happen before. But we were in panic mode. But think about this for a moment. Joseph and Mary lose Jesus. They lose the Son of God. They've lost the Messiah. Joseph and Mary, you have one job. All right? Raise the Savior of the world and you've lost him. And they didn't just lose him for a few moments. I mean, you know, I lost Zach for a few moments. They lost him for three days in a major city. Verse 46. 
And three days they found him in the temple, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great, dis- great distress. In other words, they were, we're, we're jacked out of shape, Jesus. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. That's one of those moments that it, you know, it's just kind of good if you can to just put yourself into the story to understand the magnitude of what is going on here. Now, fortunately, we know how the story ends, you know, but this story is crazy. Jesus is hanging out in in, three days in in the temple. He's with the teachers of the law. Um, He's listening to them. He's asking them questions. He's answering them. I mean, it's just amazing. And when Joseph and Mary question him, he says, what's the big deal? I'll tell you what the big deal is, Jesus. I mean, what's the big deal? I'm in here doing my father's business. And the Bible says that Joseph and Mary don't understand what he's saying. Now, (laughs) if this was one of me with my boys, this story would have a whole lot more flavor to it. All right, I'm just telling you. But look at what happens, verse 51. And he went down with them and he came came to Nazareth. And this is awesome. He says, and he was submissive to them. Now take your, take your pen or pencil if you have it and, and underline the word submissive or write a circle around it, draw a circle around it. You, you have the son of God obeying his very human parents who did not understand what he was doing. And, w- and one of my favorite verses in the Bible, it says, and, mo- and his mother Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. She pondered them. She held them near and dear to her heart. She's like, this boy's, this boy's amazing. And Jesus increased, and I love this, in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. Now again, this is the only story in the Bible that we actually have of Jesus' early life. I mean, from years 12 to 30, and then all of a sudden, we jump forward 18 years when his cousin John the Baptist begins uh, his ministry, and he, and he baptizes Jesus. Now, I know I say this all the time, but I mean this with all my heart. You do not want to miss next Sunday, okay? We're going to be talking about the baptism of Jesus, and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be one of those moments, if you miss, you're going to go, doggone, I should have been there. All right? Now, Here are a few things that we need to understand before we can really understand how God used these early years to to prepare Jesus for his life of ministry and calling and purpose, all right? Let me give you a little insight, number one, into the four New Testament Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're the four books in the Bible that tell the story of the life and the ministry of Jesus. Now, what I want you to understand about these four books, and I want you to write this down, is that the Gospels are not biographies, Okay, it's not, they're not the biographies of Jesus, they're apologetics. Now what does that mean? I, well, I talked about that last week. The gospel books were never meant to be an historical account of the life of Jesus. Instead, they were meant to be an apologetic. They were meant to be a defense, all right? An explanation of who he is and why we should follow him. Now I read this last week, and I'll just tell you what it, what it said again. In verse 1 uh, through 3 of, of chapter 1 of Luke, Luke says, listen, I'm writing at the very beginning of this book and I'm giving you the accounts of Jesus' life so that we may know with full certainty the things that we've been taught about Jesus. We want to know who he is, we want to know what he's done, and we want to know why we should follow him. Now think about this for a moment. We know some things about his birth. We know very little about his upbringing. We know some about his early, early ministry. But the majority of the gospel accounts, okay, the majority of the gospel accounts focus on the last few weeks of his life. Think about that. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, most of it is all about the last few weeks of his life. And you say, why is that? Well, it's all about what's really important. It's what the gospel writers and the Holy Spirit wanted us to know, which is Jesus' claim to be God, his death on the cross, the claim that he rose from the dead, and, that the, and the truth that those who follow him will have eternal life. Those are the keys. And so the writers kind of just dial in on those few things. Now think about this. The world gives us at least four weeks to celebrate the birth of Christ in, in, in December for most people, it starts after Thanksgiving. For some of you, it starts in October now. I know a few people where it starts in July. It's a whole nother level. That's counseling level over there, okay? But, but Mark and John, they don't even mention the birth of Jesus. Think about that for a moment. How much we celebrate the birth of Jesus. We make such a huge deal of it every year. But Mark and John don't even mention it. They go right to his baptism. You say, why is that? Because that was the start of his ministry. Now, with that said, don't miss this. Even though there is very little information about Jesus' earthly life, there's a lot going on there. We don't know a lot, but there's a lot going on there. Luke covers 18 years of Jesus' life in 13 verses. Matthew, Mark, and John don't even mention those years. But as we're about to see, those years are very important. Why? Because, again, God was molding and shaping and developing his, his son's life. He was forming him. He was getting ready for, he was getting Jesus ready for his calling and purpose. Now, here's what was happening in those 18 years of Jesus' life. And I love this. Verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. Now, some of you in this room, I know we have a lot of our students who normally come to this service. You may, be in, you, know, you may be young, you may be in your teenage years or in your early 20s right now. You're in college. Maybe you're in a new job. And you're looking at yourself and going, man, I'm just kind of low man, a low woman on the totem pole. I, I feel like my life's not accounting for anything. I feel like I haven't made my mark yet. I mean, you're, you're, and you're growing impatient. All right? Be patient. Relax. Chill out a little bit, okay? Jesus didn't start his ministry until age 30, all right? And I know Jesus, and y'all are no Jesus. I want you to know that, okay? I'm no Jesus. No one knew who he was outside his family until he was 30. But Luke says, what was going on during that time? He was growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God. Now, let me, let me make a few more observations about Jesus that are, that are not just important, but they're foundational to, his un, to understanding his life, Okay? And this is some insight into the New Testament Jesus. Jesus is clearly portrayed in the Bible as God in the flesh. And that's huge. Why did the religious leaders of the day want Jesus dead? Because he presented himself to be equal to, with God. If, you take a, if, you want, if you're writing some things down, I want you to write down John chapter 5, verse 16 through 18. And sometime this week I want you to look at it because you'll see how the conversation played out with Jesus and the religious leaders about how he was, the, he was equal to God, he was the son of God. And they wanted him dead. Now, I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn now to Colossians chapter 1. All right, look over at Colossians chapter 1 for a moment. Here's what the Apostle Paul says about this whole idea of Jesus as God in the flesh. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. What does that mean? Well, in other words, every time... That God shows up in the physical form in the Bible, whether it's Old Testament and certainly the New Testament, it's Jesus. God reveals himself to Moses as a burn, at, a, at a burning bush. Who was that? Jesus. 
Isaiah walks into the temple in Isaiah chapter 6. He sees God high and lifted up. There's, there's seraphim, these bright, fiery angels going all over the place. Who, who is it that Isaiah looks at? He sees Jesus. It's Jesus. He is always, he's the image of the invisible God. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. In other words, he was at the creation. He was part of it. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all involved in the creation of the world and of mankind. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In other words, he's the one that is in heaven right now, holding everything on earth together. He has the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole... That's who we're singing about. Now, I know some of you are looking at the world going, this world is crazy. It's spinning out of control. It's getting worse and worse and worse. Listen, if Jesus, if God did not have the world in his hands right now, it would be utter chaos, all right? We don't need to worry because God, through the son of Jesus, has the whole world in his hands, keeping complete destruction from happening. And it says, and he is also the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, understand this. Jesus doesn't just have a little God in him or half of God or he's sharing God with the Father. No, no, no. The fullness of God was in Jesus Christ. Now, turn over a chapter to Colossians 2.9. I love this verse. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You you could just circle that whole verse right there. In other words, he's completely and fully God. So listen, you may be a skeptic here uh, this morning, and you may be listening, and you might be a skeptic. You cannot honestly say that Jesus was just a good teacher if you're going to hold to the Bible as the authority on Jesus' life. You can't. Just say that there are many paths to God other than Jesus unless you clearly go against the teachings of Jesus and the word of God. I mean, Jesus said himself, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. To say any of that means you're pulling from information that doesn't exist. You're you're pulling information about Jesus that was never written. You cannot honestly, intellectually be honest about the life of Jesus and pull out the pieces of his life that you don't agree with based on information that you don't have or that doesn't exist. Because Jesus clearly states that he is the son of God and the New Testament writers, the Apostle Paul and others, they verify his claims. He is God in the flesh. Now this next part about Jesus is something that people usually don't understand or they misunderstand, even people who have been Christians all of their lives. Ready? Jesus is also clearly portrayed as fully human. Now, how in the world can someone be 100% human and 100% God? And the answer is, I don't know. It's one of the things that I'm excited. When I get to heaven, I have many, many questions that I want to ask God. And this is one of those things. But here's what you need to understand about Jesus in the New Testament. When God became a man, he became 100% man. In Philippians chapter 2, we see the Apostle Paul again writing tells us that he emptied himself. It's a Greek word, kenosis. It means that he took something, something, and he emptied himself of his deity, okay? He didn't access it. 
He didn't use it. He completely let it go. He was 100% God, 100% human. And here's why this is so important. Because most people grow up with this image of Jesus like he's a Clark Kent Jesus. Remember the story of Clark Kent? Superman? He was never really human. He was always Superman. The suit, the tie, the weird personality. It was all just a front to hide who he really was. He was he was Superman, even as Clark Kent. He still had the x-ray vision. He still had the superhuman hearing. When someone needed to be rescued, he would go find a phone booth and he would, I don't really know what he did in the phone booth, okay? We don't know if he, he didn't strip down naked. I don't know if the suit was under there, what was going on, but he was always Superman, all right? He didn't become Superman in the phone booth. He was always Superman. He was just hiding it. Now, that's the image that many people have of Jesus, that he was just kind of faking the whole human thing. You know, he really didn't have to grow up and walk. He, he, when, he, when he was, like, you know, b- born, he could have walked. He was just pretending he couldn't, all right? He, he really didn't need to learn. He was just faking it to impress people. He really didn't need to go to the bathroom. I mean, everyone else was doing it, so he just went and did it. I mean, he's like, I got to be like these people, so I'm going to go to the bathroom. Here's the truth. He was just like us in every way, except he never sinned. That's why he could go to the, de- to the cross for our sins. He could die for our sins. He's, uh, the, in 1 Corinthians, now listen, don't, don't lose me here. In 1 Corinthians, Paul calls him the second Adam. What does that mean? Well, the first Adam who came in Genesis, he failed and sinned against God. Jesus was a human that did not fail. And we're going to see in a few weeks before Jesus started his earthly ministry that Satan took him out into the wilderness and tested him with three specific tests. And Jesus passed every time. Adam was tested by Satan and he failed. He sinned against God. And because of Adam, all of us are born with a sin nature. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But what happened? A sinless man gave his life so that that our sin could be forgiven and that those who are adopted into the family of God could now live forever. In other words, we are given an opportunity to have eternal life. That's why the virgin birth is so important. That's why it has to happen. Jesus was fully human, but he was born without a sin nature. He wasn't tainted by Adam's sin like you and I are. So when he was tempted, he passed, he passed the temptation. Throughout his whole 33 years, he faced every emotion that you and I will face. He faced every feeling, every moment of discouragement, every bit of rejection that you and I feel, every moment of sorrow, every, every bit of pain. I mean, more pain than probably any of us will ever feel. And he was tempted to sin, but he did not sin. Now, as I was going through this this past week, last couple of weeks, just kind of thinking through all of that, the fact that he was fully human and he faced head on the experiences that we face as humans, I think makes his going to the cross for us all that much more powerful and meaningful. I, I just do. I mean, he, he went to the cross in obedience to his father's will. He didn't, he didn't want to go through the suffering. He didn't want to go through the pain. He didn't want to go through the humiliation and, and the brutality of the cross. Romans refused to go to the cross. They refused that kind of death. But if you remember what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, three times Jesus said to his father, Lord, please, if, you, if it would be your will, take this cup of suffering away from me. And three times his father said, no. Why? Because his whole life had been a preparation for the cross. And Jesus said, all right, not my will, but your will be done. Your will be done. Jesus didn't have Clark Kent's superman power 
when he went through all of this. He, he didn't have it as a child. That's why the Bible says he had to grow up in, and grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. And as a grown man, what happened? He had the Holy Spirit just like you and I have. It was the source of his spiritual power. But Jesus emptied himself of his deity and went through life and went to death as a man fully human. And I think that's powerful. I I hope somehow this helps you to lift up Jesus in your eyes in a way that you've never experienced before. To become the second Adam and to go through every test that we face and not fail. And, and then to go to the cross to face the most torturous death that one could experience. I mean, listen, it, it's an expression of love for us that's almost impossible for us to completely get our minds around. Now, for the rest of the time, I want to look at some practical principles that we can learn from Jesus' early years. And how God was using those years, even if we don't know a lot about it, how God was using those early years to really prepare Jesus for his calling and his purpose. Because I believe that as we look at how the Father prepared Jesus for his calling, I think it's going to give you some insight and some solid just understanding of how God may be, what God may be doing in your life right now to prepare you for your calling and your purpose. Now, before I get into this, some of you may be th- sitting here thinking, calling? I, I don't think I have a calling on my life. I don't, I don't think I really have a purpose. Well, listen, as a follower of Jesus, we all have callings on our life. We all have been set aside for a purpose. You say, where do you find that? First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, look at the screen. But you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Peter says, you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. And just as the priests represented God to the people of the Old Testament, we've been called and chosen to represent God to the people of this world. And I know some of like, it'd be so easy at this moment to hide our head in the sand and try to hide from all that's going on in the world. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. You have been set apart. You're a royal priesthood. Before the beginning of time, you've been chosen to be a representative of God in this world. And guess what you have as a result of that? You have authority. You walk through this world with authority because you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, bought with a price. We don't walk through right this time that we're going through in fear or trying to hold. No, 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 listen. Our calling is to represent God to the world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Some of you may be thinking, man, I don't really have any gifts or talents. Before the beginning of time, the Bible says God chose us to be his workmanship, to do good works, which God had prepared in advance for us to do. That means that God is sovereign and working in your life to line you up, to take the right gifts that he's put in your life, to line up the right gifts to meet the right people at just the right time. There is a calling on your life to be used for God's purposes. That doesn't mean you go into full-time ministry. We're all in full-time ministry. All right, doesn't mean you have to stand up here and do what I'm doing or do what someone else on my staff is doing. You're all in full-time ministry. And that's, when you think about that, that's awesome. When you wake up tomorrow morning, you go, I've been created for a purpose. I've been created for a calling. And as God prepared Jesus for his calling, he's preparing you the same way. Now let's check out some of these principles, okay? Three things, three principles we can learn from Jesus' early life. Again, we don't know a ton about his early years, but one of the things that jumps off the pages at me, and you cannot miss this, is that hardship is not a handicap. Hardship's not a handicap. When it came time to prepare Jesus for the most important purpose and assignment in human history, God the Father 
did not give Jesus all the advantages that we might think that we need or the, or the advantages that we might think our kids need to be successful. It's almost like God just did the exact opposite of what we might think that he would do for his son. He actually grew him up in hardship. How does God produce perseverance and maturity in our lives? Well, if you look at James chapter 1, it starts off by telling us that it's trials, it's hardship, it's testing. That's how God produces maturity and endurance and perseverance in our lives. But what do we do too often? We will do anything and everything to avoid hardships for ourselves, especially if our kids are involved. Especially today. I mean, if our kids are going through hardships, we hover, you know, when our, we're in our helicopter and we'll just hover down and go, I'm going to rescue, you know, that kind of thing. I'm going after that coach. I'm going after that teacher. Don't Listen. Listen to what God the Father initially gave to Jesus. With, with all the options in front of him. God the Father, he's got all the options in front of him to raise his, his son. He grows him up in poverty. Grows him up in poverty. Jesus had other brothers, maybe even had some sisters from what we know. All right, Joseph and Mary didn't have, an, Jesus, Jesus didn't have his own bedroom he didn't have his own bathroom. Okay, he didn't have, like, Jesus, you can get a car when you're sick. He didn't, he didn't have all that stuff, all right? You get your own donkey when you're sick. No, he didn't. No. Wasn't going on. You ready for this one? Jesus grew up a refugee. What are you talking about? Well, when he was around two years old, after the wise men came, he and his family, where did they have to go? They went to Egypt to, to, to basically save Jesus' life. He was the firstborn. Herod had ordered that all two-year-old males and younger be killed. Bethlehem to Egypt is over 430 miles. They traveled by foot and by donkey. Think about the conditions. This is a Jewish family living in a very non-Jewish world, a world that has been a part of Jew, Jew, the Jews' bad history, going back to Egypt. Now, apparently, somewhere in the 18-year period, Jesus lost his father. We don't see Joseph anywhere found in Jesus' ministry years. You don't, you don't see him. He just disappears. Think about this. His half-brother, James, grows up in the same house with Jesus and actually doesn't believe he's the son of God until after the resurrection. Think of the challenges that were going on in the house. Jesus is the son of God. James is like, he is not. And he's also raised in the wrong neighborhood. When he's picking his disciples, one of them says, listen, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. And that's where Jesus grew up. Jesus grew up poor in the worst part of town. Jesus was from the hood. All right? And his disciples are from Galilee. They went to the wrong school. And this is God's son. Now think of all that we do to try to provide for our kids. I mean, every advantage, every experience. Think of all the things that we do sometimes. And I'm guilty of this. To shield our kids, to protect our kids. And yet Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 tells us that Jesus learned obedience from what? From what he suffered. Folks, it could be that part of the reason that your kids or you are not experiencing the all that God has for your lives is because you're unwilling to hang in there through tough times. Here's a goal. We want our kids and our grandkids to grow up to be strong oaks, oaks, oak trees, rooted deep in the ground, unshakable. But what happens? We try to protect them and we grow them up, try to protect them in greenhouses for the first 21 years of their lives. And then we, we you know, when that, that 21 years is over, we plant them outside and we go, go ahead and grow. And all of a sudden the first struggle happens and they wither. And we wonder, what in the world just happened here? What makes an oak tree grow strong? It's, it's the droughts. 
It's the hard winters. It's the tough winds that make these, those roots go down deep. And they go, you know, when they go down deep and, and, and try to find nourishment, that's what makes them grow deep and strong. Now, listen, again, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that, you know, that you, you stay in every hardship. You pray for wisdom. I'm not saying that you don't protect your kids at moments where they need to protect it. Obviously, we need some wisdom and we need moments where we need to step in. But listen, hardships are where we grow strong. It's where our roots grow deep. Storms strengthen us. And that's how God has chosen to prepare us for his purposes and his calling. That's how he chose to prepare his son. So don't overprotect. Don't run from tough things. Trust the heart of the Father. Second thing, timing is everything. How long did Jesus wait to start his earthly ministry? Well, Luke 3.23, write this down. So Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. 30 years One minute, Jesus is 12. He's in the temple wowing the religious leaders with his questions and answers, and then he disappears into obscurity for 18 years. 18 years is a long, long time. Why would God do that? It was his will. He's the only one that knew when Jesus was ready. You know what? Sometimes we get into a situation where we're like, Lord, I'm ready right now. I'm 20. I'm 21. I'm 18. I'm 25. Don't microwave, don't don't microwave the process of God's purpose and calling on your life. You know, I I was 32 years old when we started this church, 27 when I got married. I I would have, you know, done it all earlier, but God knew I wasn't ready. Listen, don't rush God. His timing is perfect. His timing is everything. And then the last thing, don't, to, to lead well, we must first learn to follow well. Think about this. At the age of 12, His parents left him in a major city by himself for three days. And when they found him, they didn't understand what he was talking about. They didn't understand what he was saying. They knew he was a son of God, but they totally didn't grasp his purpose and his calling. But Jesus chose to do something at the age of 12. He chose to submit to them as his authority. Luke 2.51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. Now, in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he says, guys, listen. They're bantering and arguing over who is the greatest. And Jesus says, listen, greatness, the pathway to greatness is through service. He says, I did not come to be served. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others. In other words, if you want to be a great leader, first you have to be willing to serve other people. You have to learn to be a great follower. Think about this. One of the major lessons that God the Father had his son Jesus learn as Jesus is the supreme being over all creation, the one to whom the whole world will bow down and worship. One of the very first lessons was to learn how to be a follower, to learn to be submissive. Well, listen, here's what some of you might be going through right now. You're going through a season of hardship. Maybe you're going through a season of waiting. You're struggling with God's timing. Maybe you're, you're being asked to work for someone right now or to submit yourself to someone who, who just is, maybe they're demanding, they're overbearing. It's a, it's, it's a coach you don't like. It's a coworker who's now your boss or it's somebody. And you're just like, I, ah. Students, maybe it's in your house. You're struggling with authority. Listen, God may be setting you up for your purpose and for your calling in life. And he's gonna use hardship, he's going to use timing, and he's gonna teach you how to serve. He wants you to learn how to be under authority. And we see this pattern throughout the Bible. We see it in the life of Daniel. We see it in the life of Old Testament Joseph. We see it in the life of David, and now we see it in Jesus. One of the, I think one of the greatest gifts my parents gave me 
was the fact that they just didn't, they didn't rescue me from everything that was hard. I think they may have wanted to, but they couldn't. I mean, we, we didn't have a lot. When I was in high school, we were, I think we were on food stamps. Just didn't have a lot. At one point when I was in college, parents didn't have a lot of, they didn't have a lot of money to pay for my college. I think one time I was working three jobs just to get through my senior year. But one of the greatest gifts that my parents gave me was they taught me how to respect authority, even if I didn't agree with what was going on. To respect coaches, to respect employee, employers, to just respect older adults who were over me at certain points. And it's something I think sometimes we've lost in this age and culture, is just learning how to submit to authority. Don't run from hardships, okay? Unless you're in danger. Don't continue to reach down and pull your kids out of tough times. It, I can't, I could step here all day long and tell you about all of the emails that I've written that I've never sent, all of the moments where I've wanted to just reach down and grab a coach and just, and I didn't do it. Just, I had one of those moments this past week, not with, our, not with my kids' coach, but just with a, a person up at his school. Wait on God's timing and keep serving those who have, who you've been placed under authority. Unless they're just asking you to do something sinful or evil, you don't do that. But just remember, to lead well, you have to follow well. The idea that Jesus learned obedience and maturity and perseverance and service under the roof of sinful parents blows me away. But it was part of God's preparation for for his greatest moment. All of that, that time of obscurity, nobody knew who he was. It was all about the moment that he laid down his life for you and me. And I don't know about you, but when I think about all that, it just makes me love him more. It makes me, it makes me appreciate his sacrifice even more. It makes me want to be closer to him. It makes me want to follow him even more fully. The fact that he was completely God, he laid it aside, took on 100% human form, went through everything that I will ever face in this life. Every trial, every bit of pain, every bit of rejection, every bit of suffering, every, every moment of sorrow, discouragement, testing, temptation. Jesus faced it all. That's why, that's why he can relate to you. That's why you can relate to him. That's why you can go to him at any moment and put your burdens on him. Because he, he's, I get it. I went through it. I understand it. I took on the form of a human so that I could understand all you're going through, so you could trust me. So you wouldn't have to run to this girl, this guy, this person. That No, you could run to me because I'm the only person that gets it. And when I think about that, it makes me want to draw closer to him. It makes me love him more. And if you're here today, listen, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus and accepted his forgiveness, the forgiveness that he made available to you on the cross. Listen, the whole reason he did this was because God looked down and said, these folks are lost. There's no one that can ever make up for the sin that that has been committed. Nobody can ever cover what Adam did and all the consequences of that. So uh, this blood that's being shed every year by these lambs and goats and all this stuff and uh, grain offering, that's just not going to cut it. Jesus, you're going to have to go down and do it. And he did. Set aside his godship and said, I'll take on the form of a human. I'll do it. I don't want to do it. Ah. God said, this is my will. And Jesus did it. Gave his life for you. And offers you forgiveness and salvation right now. With heads bowed, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be your Savior, you've never asked him 
for forgiveness. You've never said, Lord, Jesus, what you did for me on the cross was enough by going and paying for all of my sins. Lord, I put all my faith and trust in you now. I can't pay for my sins. I can't make right things right between me and God. Things are broken. I can't fix that. Otherwise, there'd be no need for you. So right now, just pray with me if you need to. Say, Lord, at this moment, I put all of my faith and trust in your son, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins, to pay for my sins. All that would happen on the cross, Lord, I accept it as payment. Jesus did what I cannot do, gave a life that I could not give, shed blood that I couldn't shed. And so I put all my faith and trust in him. I'm so sorry for my sins. Lord, would you forgive me? And Jesus, you're the son of God. You're the only way to God the Father. And I put all my faith in that right now.